0: Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JPMorgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today.
1: Hi, this is Meridi Cleary from the Fick Market Structure team at JPMorgan. In this episode of Market Matters, we're going to focus on the development of international carbon markets. These markets aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by facilitating trades between those who are looking to reduce emissions, compensate for emissions, and those looking for opportunities as part of the carbon transition. Over the past few years, emissions trading has garnered the attention of a broad range of policymakers and market participants, which makes it a fascinating market. With me to discuss these drivers and dynamics, I'm joined by my colleague in trading, Jose Cubria who's leading JP Morgan's carbon trading activity. Hi, Jose.
2: Hey, Marty. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, of course. It's great to have you here. So in July, as you know, the FIC market structure team published a report on emissions trading, given the market structural dynamics in this market. When it comes to the trading of emissions, we outlined in the report that there are broadly two types of markets the compliance or mandatory markets, and then the voluntary markets or VCM. Before delving into these, I think it would be useful to take a step back. Jose, how has carbon trading fundamentally functioned? I wondered if you could run us through how it works from your seat.
2: Sure, at a high level, carbon markets work just like any other commodity markets. Supply and demand are the fundamental price drivers and other factors such as regulation or legislation play important roles. Certain carbon instruments can be traded bilaterally or on exchanges, such as the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME, and the Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE. Carbon derivatives have become an increasingly important tool in helping market participants meet emissions targets. And these instruments can range from swaps to forwards, options, futures, etc. Carbon derivative products, for example, emissions allowance futures, are physically delivered, meaning that contracts held to expiry result in physical delivery. Of course, there are nuances to each carbon market, and we can get into
1: those a bit more later. You mentioned carbon allowances there, which often get confused when compared to other products. What is the difference between carbon offsets and carbon allowances?
2: Offsets and allowances are the two main types of tradable carbon instruments, but they do often get confused for each other. I think it's really important to highlight that even though both are measured in metric tons, they represent fundamentally different things. A carbon allowance is a permit to emit one ton of carbon dioxide. Allowances are issued or created by regulators, and polluters covered by cap-and-trade schemes must purchase allowances against their carbon footprint. But there's no inherent value to a carbon allowance beyond the mandatory purchase under a cap-and-trade. In other words, the allowance itself doesn't represent anything. Auctioning continues to be the primary means of introducing allowances into the market, and participants are also able to trade allowances on a secondary market. Carbon offsets, which are also called carbon credits, exist because of an activity that actually mitigates carbon emissions. In other words, carbon offsetting is a reduction or removal of emissions from the atmosphere. Each carbon offset represents one metric ton of carbon that was avoided, meaning it didn't get released into the atmosphere, or one metric ton of carbon that was removed, meaning it was pulled out of the atmosphere. In either case, the carbon offset rewards the entity that captured or removed the carbon, and the ultimate buyer of the carbon offset can claim the environmental impact of that
1: mitigation. Okay, thanks, yes. I think these terms can easily be confused, so thanks for clearing that up. If we first focus on compliance carbon markets, which I mentioned earlier, these markets are regulated by national, regional, and international carbon reduction regimes. Here, the trading of emissions is done on an ETS, or an emissions trading system which create an economic incentive for industries to reduce emissions.
2: Yes, exactly. Under an ETS, regulated entities buy or receive emissions allowances. ETSs are cap and trade systems, which as the name suggests, have two main functions. The first is to put a limit on carbon emissions, and that's the cap. And the second is to put a price on carbon emissions, and that's the trade. Once the ETS is in place, the entities covered by the scheme buy allowances, and they can do that on the primary market, typically via auctions, or on the secondary market, that would be through exchanges or from intermediaries. That trading activity is what sets the market price for an allowance, and that gives polluters a way of calculating the cost of their emissions. They can then use the price signal to decide whether it's cheaper for them to buy allowances or to change the way they do their business to pollute less. The main drivers in the EU ETS are of course supply and demand. The supply of allowances is determined by the cap or the desired limit of pollution, and regulators can and often do respond to various signals Financial or political, to change how and when supply is put into or taken out of the market.
1: The EU developed the first ETS in 2005. Now, in its fourth phase, the EU has been focusing on a lot of reforms to its Fit for 55 package with the EU ETS within this.
2: Yeah, the EU ETS serves as the EU's primary policy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and it's probably the most complex cap and trade because of the breadth of industries and countries it covers. The inputs on the demand side include everything from weather to the price of coal or the price of natural gas to interest rates and more. And there's also a significant investor or speculative element to the market, which is great for liquidity and price discovery, but that also brings other types of risks and trade flows to the market. As I mentioned earlier, demand for EUAs or EU allowances traded on the ETS is driven by the entities who must buy allowances. And those can be energy generators, industrial polluters, and et cetera. JP Morgan's trading desk participates in the EU ETS, and we offer a variety of products and risk management solutions to our clients. We have trading capabilities on exchanges as well as bilaterally, and we also now offer EUAs on our single dealer platform. Going back to your question though, EU policymakers have been looking to expand the scope of the ETS. For example, legislation was adopted this year to scope in emissions from the maritime sector, starting in 2024, And it was announced that a separate ETS will be established for certain fuels used in buildings, road transport, and industry.
1: Yes, this year was a busy one for the EU ETS in terms of reforms. On top of the increased scope of coverage, the EU has announced that it will phase out the free allocation under the EU ETS, which will take place in parallel with the phasing in of CBAM between 2026 to 2034.
2: Yeah, we hear the term CBAM a lot in my world. CBAM is the EU's carbon border adjustment mechanism, and it's essentially a tool that will aim to put a fair price on the carbon emitted during the production of carbon-intensive goods entering the EU and encouraging cleaner industrial production in non-EU countries. The CBAM aims to help ensure that the carbon price of imports is equivalent to the carbon price of domestic production. In terms of timeframes, the CBAM will enter into application in its transitional phase later this year, on October 1st, with the first reporting period for importers ending on January 31st, 2024. When fully phased in, CBAM intends to capture more than 50% of the emissions in ETS-covered sectors. And to your point, the gradual phasing in of the CBAM is aligned with the phase-out of the allocation of free allowances under the cap-and-trade. In April of this year, actually, the EU Parliament adopted a package of reforms that will phase out free allocations for the industry from 2026 through 2034.
1: And while the EU ETS launched in 2005, as I mentioned before, post-Brexit, the UK created its own ETS, which went live in 2021 to replace its participation on the EU cap and trade. What have been some of the dynamics, according to your counterparts in EMEA? Are there significant divergences from the trading of UK allowances versus EU allowances?
2: Well, the clearest sign that the UK scheme is significantly different from the EU ETS is that EUAs are currently worth somewhere between one and a half to two times as much as UKAs. And this is a market change from much of last year when UKAs were trading at a premium to EUAs.
1: Interesting. And why is that?
2: Well, the short explanation for the price reversal in UKAs and for the difference in UK and EU pricing in general is in the fundamentals. And I think specifically in UKA supply. The UK recently announced it will inject more than 50 million UKAs into the market between 2024 and 2027, and that additional supply is weighing on prices. The UK also said it will increase the number of free allowances it gives out to certain high-emitting sectors, and that's another bearish price driver. There's nothing permanent in the current price divergence between EUAs and UKAs, of course. Numerous factors can and will influence pricing going forward, and those could be supply-demand balances, it could be macroeconomic trends, regulation, politics, etc.
1: Unlike the carbon compliance market in the UK, for example, compliance carbon markets in the U.S. take a different shape. There isn't currently a nationwide ETS in the States. Jose, with you based there, what's the structure and history of the U.S. compliance carbon market? It's clearly a little bit more fragmented.
2: It is. For most of the last decade, there have been two cap and trade schemes in North America. The first is the WCI, which stands for Western Climate Initiative, and that currently has California and Quebec as members. And then there's the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which we commonly call REGI, and that has about a dozen member states in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic U.S. Earlier this year, the state of Washington launched its own ETS, and the state of Massachusetts has a cap-and-trade specific to power generators in the state. That program supplements the state's participation in REGI. But the massachusetts market is not open to non-compliance entities various other states in the u.s are at least discussing or considering launching their own ets or maybe joining an existing scheme but i don't think any of those are on the cusp of launching yet
1: yes and over the last decade these markets have developed quite a bit the most obvious change is the price in both reggie and california which is multiple times higher than they were just a few years ago How have these evolved in the time you've been trading in these markets?
2: Well, a large part of the price increase in both markets, and I think especially in California, is that the program is designed for prices to increase over time, with annual increases to the auction price floor, to the price containment reserve, and to the price ceiling. Both programs also undertake periodic reviews every few years, and those processes typically lead to important changes to the market design and to market supply. Historically, every program review has led to a tighter supply-demand balance and higher prices. And it's worth highlighting that both California and Regg are undergoing their reviews as we speak. The other major change we've seen in these markets is that there's increased interest from investors and speculators. And that mirrors what we first saw in Europe a few years ago. The California-Québec program and Reggie are both significantly smaller than the EU ETS, But they're still big enough and liquid enough to attract participants outside of the usual compliance entities, trading shops and financial intermediaries such as J.P. Morgan.
1: Yeah. And both of these main programs currently have multiple members. Right.
2: Yeah, that's right. Reggie has 11 or 12 states and that number is an approximation because things are still in motion. For example, Pennsylvania is technically a Reggie member and they have been since the start of the year. But that participation is on hold and tied up in the state courts. Another member state, Virginia, is currently in REGI but planning to exit at the end of 2023, although that too is stuck in the courts. The WCI has California and Quebec as current members, and Ontario was also a part of the program for a short time. The program's design explicitly lays out the steps for further linkages, and the state of Washington's recently launched program was designed to closely mirror California's with an eye towards an eventual linkage in a few years. The joint California-Quebec ETS is quite a bit bigger than Regie, and I'd say it's also the most dynamic and liquid of the two. JP Morgan's trading desk participates in both. Similar to my point on the EU ETS, in Regie and in California and Quebec, we offer risk management solutions on exchanges as well as bilaterally.
1: And of course, carbon trading has taken off across the globe, not just in EMEA and North America. For example, China's ETS, which started operating in 2021, is now estimated to be the world's largest in terms of covered emissions. How do these compliance markets in the US that we were speaking about differ from, for example, China's ETS?
2: Well, cap and trade schemes are definitely on the rise globally. And as you say, APEC is a key region to watch. China's ETS is operational, although the sectors covered and the types of entities allowed to participate in it are still evolving. The same would go for compliance schemes in South Korea, in Australia, and elsewhere in the region. The one constant in carbon trading, I think, is change, and I'm confident that over the next few years, there will be more markets. As emissions trading continues to develop globally, we at JP Morgan are working to expand our trading capabilities across these markets.
1: Okay, so we spent a good chunk of time on the compliance carbon markets, but of course, we should briefly touch on the second major type of emissions trading market, which is the voluntary carbon market, or VCM. Since these markets currently lack a centralized regulatory framework or structure, it means that it's a little bit hard to estimate the actual size. And because of this, there have been concerns that this lack of transparency and oversight provides a downside to the market. But at the same time, the driving force behind the rise of VCM is that they open the door to new investors looking to opt into this global carbon transition.
2: Yeah, the VCM has actually existed for over a decade now, but it still feels nascent compared to the cap-and-trade markets we've been discussing. I think that's because the market was essentially dormant for most of the 2010s, but it's definitely roared back to life in the last handful of years. The renewed interest, I think, has brought with it massive changes and significant growth, but also a lot of criticism, and that all adds up to an extremely dynamic and ever-evolving market.
1: And what types of participants does it attract? I imagine there are several barriers to entry.
2: Well, on the demand side, the short answer is that almost literally every company in the world is a potential buyer of carbon offsets. Anyone with a carbon footprint and with a commitment to clean up its act could look to carbon credits as one way to offset its emissions. The supply side has historically been made up of smaller boutique and specialist carbon credit developers, but I think that's also starting to change as bigger and more capitalized entities enter the project development realm. As with any other global commodity, there's no shortage of secondary market participants looking to get involved in trading carbon offsets, including financial intermediaries like JP Morgan.
1: Well, thank you, Jose, so much for your time today. We've covered a lot on ground here. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Meredith.
1: We'll be sure to keep our listeners and our clients up to date with any major developments in the carbon markets. If you're interested in further learning about how J.P. Morgan participates in these markets, please feel free to reach out to your J.P. Morgan sales representative. To our listeners, please stay tuned for more thick market structure features on Making Sense. I hope you have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to J.P. Morgan's Making Sense. To stay on top of the latest industry news and trends, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together JP Morgan, and do not constitute research or recommendation advice or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. They are not issued by J.P. Morgan's Research Department, but are a solicitation under CFTC Rule 1.71. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. The FICC Market Structure Publications or to one, newsletters mentioned in this podcast are available for J.P. Morgan clients. Please contact your J.P. Morgan sales representative should you wish to receive these. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures. Copyright 2023, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved.